you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow before you this afternoon, we do want to pause for a moment, Father, to thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have a, a proper view of your word, a, a, an attitude, Father, that is one that's been shaped by you and your spirit and our love for you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have a very strong desire to want to really understand what is written. The Father, that we would also have a very strong desire that our entire life would be shaped by your word. The Father, we would have a, a hunger for your word that is not easily satisfied. We ask that you would help us to meditate and think about your word often. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us by your spirit to properly evaluate our lives by your word, by what it says. Though we seek understanding of your word, we pray that we would never be satisfied with only understanding what the word means. But Father, we would have a very strong desire to want our life and every facet of our life to be shaped and molded so that we are like your son, Jesus Christ. Often, Father, it seems that we forget that we are to emulate Christ in every way. And so we ask that you would help us, Father, to desire that, to have that on our mind often. And Lord, then also that we would seek to attain that through your help and through the word. So we ask this evening, Lord, as we continue our way through the book of Ephesians, that you would do that for us. Our Father, we'd be so grateful if you would help us in this area. Though we know that we are to pursue these things and live in obedience to your word, we often find it, Lord, difficult to do. At times, we find ourselves not really trying to do it. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us where we need help the most. And so, as always, we are grateful that you are patient with us and that you continue to help us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 25 through 27 reads this way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We spent several weeks talking about the phrasing and the meaning of, of Paul when he mentioned to wives that they were to submit to their husbands. Oftentimes, individuals will read through Ephesians 5, and they will come to this conclusion that God commands the wife to submit, he commands the husband to love, the wife has the harder job. But that's really not true. I think they are both significantly very difficult and in our own strength, impossible. 
We too often maybe overlook what he's saying here when he talks about husbands loving their wives. Because what we have to keep in the forefront of our mind through every word and every phrase that we read is that when he commands the husband to love the wife, he does not say, love your wife to the best of your ability. That's not in there. And to love our wives to the best of our ability is to fall short of the command of God and the glory of God. It is to change what Scripture says. It is to accept a standard that is less than what God has laid out. He's told us here exactly how he commands and desires for the husband to love his wife. It is as Christ loved the church. He doesn't tell us that that's the standard and he wants you to get as close as you can. He doesn't say that either. He simply commands that. That in the same way that Jesus Christ loves the church, that is the standard, that is what is to be attained by the husband when it comes to loving his wife. Which means then that for most of us as husbands, maybe all, we are sinning 24 hours a day. Not really a wonderful thought, but we're coming short of what is there. And we want to make sure that we don't ever excuse anything that uh, might give us a, some kind of a justifying reason as to why we come short. We are to seek the Lord's help and pursue this. This is not to be discouraging to us. He is seeking to encourage us, but he begins with the command and wants us to know what the standard happens to be. One has explained it this way, by simply saying how a husband can love this way can only be done by being filled with the Spirit. And then he says this, being filled with the Spirit is like taking a glass, knocking the bottom out of it and sticking it in a river and letting the river flow through it. It is not filling it up, drinking it and emptying it. No, you don't empty yourself of God. God has come into you to be a permanent resident. The way in which you are controlled by his Spirit who is like a river of living water flowing from your innermost spirit, is to deal with sin in your life, being willing to let him control every area of your life. Then that flow can be what it ought to be. So hang on to that. We are to be fully exposed to the Lord Jesus. Then you begin to experience the strengthening in the inner man by his ability that is far beyond yours. So what he brings out here in this, as, as, and you'll see this as we look at this, and of course as you read through all of Ephesians, I think this comes out. We just don't always back away and, and kind of you know, digest all of this. A Christian husband then needs to pursue Christ and pursue holiness in every facet of his life. If he doesn't do that, he's always going to be unable to love his wife as Christ loved the church. It's, it's, not, a, it's not that we have a segmented life. And we might be faltering over here, but we're going to be successful here. There is this connection. It's not some magical connection. It's not like we have to make sure that we check off certain boxes and then we're going to be okay. So what we need to realize then uh, as men is that if we fail to read the scripture on a regular basis, and you'll know if you've listened to me for a while that I normally never define what that means. Because we're not trying to get into, once again, checking off a box. So I'm not going to get into if a regular reading of the word is every day 
or if it's three days a week or five days a week. But it does need to be a, a regular thing for us to be ingesting the Word of God. If we're not ingesting the Word of God on a regular basis, then we are going to fail at loving our wife as we're supposed to. We are to pray daily and come to the Lord, praying for ourselves, for others, all the many different things that the Bible speaks about. If we falter in that area, we are also necessarily going to falter in this other area. You see, we might be okay in the sense that we're still able to treat our wife nicely. We still may be able to do nice things for her and plan those things out. But being married is more than just that. It's the way that we respond to her spontaneously, the way that we, way that we react to every situation and every circumstance that involves or touches on the woman that's our, that is our wife, that is to be our life, that is to be our focus. It's also talking about the attitude that even though we may think that we are hiding our true attitude, it often comes through when those that are closest to us, which would be our wife, can still see that. And we may not be loving our wife that way in the way that we are supposed to. Whether it's through, uh, maybe we're failing in the area of being impatient. Uh, and then we can begin to go through a long list of things uh, where we may be failing. But again, the goal then is not to come up with some kind of a list that maybe even your wife comes up with and then make sure you're able to check those boxes every week. Because it's more than just those things. Remember, it's, it's everything that's involved in the relationship. So it's how we relate to each other. It, it's, it's all those things combined. And so what we need to recognize is that this is so impossible for us to do in the flesh that unless we are living as we ought to live, where our union with Christ, in a sense, dictates the way I live every day, I'm going to falter in this area. And if I falter in this area... It's going to have detrimental effects on my wife, on my children, on my life, on my relationship with the Lord, my relationship with others as well. It affects every facet of my life. So, again, we should not just look at this passage and just immediately assume, man, I'm glad I'm, I'm not the one who's like the wife who has to submit. I'm not sure I could do that. In fact, I wouldn't even want to do that. This here, I believe... Maybe it's because I'm a man. I believe it's the harder thing. Very difficult, to say the least. Paul's also given similar commands. Let me read them to you just to make sure that we don't think that this is just some kind of an anomaly that Paul has spoken of here in Ephesians 5. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. It's true here. He doesn't say, love your wife as Christ loves the church. That's given to us in Ephesians 5. Here he says, love your wives. And then he adds something which I, I am sure that it is added because this will tend to be an area that we can easily move into. Bitterness. There's warnings in the Bible about us not as Christians not allowing bitterness to ever take root. Because bitterness is, is the kind of sin that if it begins to take root in your life, it is a sin that is very, very powerful because it affects others in a very specific way. I personally believe that the word defile there, it talks about others being defiled. If you allow bitterness to take root, 
I believe that that word is used purposely because if you if you do a word study on the word defiled, if you go back into the Old Testament, just kind of look at what that, that word, how it's used, to be defiled always put an individual in a position where they were unable to worship God. So it, it immediately affected, in a detrimental way, your relationship with the Lord. So here, what he's letting us know, that if we do not love our wives, but on the other hand, if we become bitter, well, there's this connection between that and our having difficulty in our relationship with the Lord. There's going to be a strain there. For whatever reason, the marriage relationship tends to be one where this apparently can happen fairly easy. And bitterness is also one of those things that usually in the beginning we deny that we're bitter anyway. Oh, I'm not bitter. And we might even believe it ourselves because what does Jeremiah say? That the human heart is wicked. It is so wicked. He, remember, he asked the question uh, when you get down to verse 9 in chapter 17, who can know the heart? And it's a rhetorical question because he's going to give you the answer. And the answer is very singular. I, the Lord, know the heart. No one else understands the heart. That's why we, again, turn to the scripture to understand ourselves. So we can have a good, proper understanding, a correct understanding of ourselves, of our motives, of the inner man, of what makes us tick. We go to the scriptures to find that out and to learn what that is. And so once again, we're told here that bitterness is not to be a part of our life. And specifically here, the husband is never to be bitter towards his wife. And of course, normally that's an, an inward thing. Then over in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, that's your wife, with understanding. Which immediately wipes out all the jokes that people make about how women are impossible to understand. Maybe women in general might be impossible to understand, but your wife isn't. Apparently it is something that actually can be accomplished. We could have a long discussion as to maybe it's only possible through the power of God himself. But the point is, is that we are not to somehow to say, well, I just can't understand her. We are told here that the husband is to live with his wife and he's to do so in a specific way. And that specific way is to be understanding. And to be understanding here is to be aware of what she is like, what, her, what she cares about, um, what she doesn't like, her mannerisms. All those things kind of go into this. So there, there needs to be... Uh, observation and intimate knowledge of this individual. That is the way that we are to, to love them. It's never to be just two people living under the same roof. Uh, that really is outside the bonds here. But then he also adds to that that the, the man or the husband is to give honor to his wife. Here it's really more strongly on the side of giving preference in really every way. That's probably a better word, easier for us to grasp because we don't really use the word honor in this way. But he tells us here that the way that we are to honor our wife is we are to treat her as being the weaker vessel. That doesn't mean that she's dumb. It doesn't mean that she's incapable. That's not the point. The point is uh, where the one who is someone of strength encompasses a, a certain type of gentleness and preference for the one who's weaker. So it's not a superiority and an inferior kind of thing has nothing to do with any of that. And we've already covered that in great detail when we were looking at what the scripture says about the wife submitting. But what the man is commanded to hear, what he's to be thinking about, uh, is this type of thing. It is what, at least I think many men, at least in our culture, do naturally when they uh, begin to engage 
uh, with younger children, you know, children that are small. You know, it's, it's, we, we recognize that they can be easily kind of squashed, so to speak. And so we, we tend to be very gentle with them. You know, we tend to, you can, you can see that uh, most men are controlling their strength and, and being gentle and careful. Uh, so that's the idea there. So it's the one that, that requires forethought and effort that's put into this. But then it's not only that she is weaker, as it says here, uh, in treating her that way, but then he adds as being heirs together the grace of life. So once again, back to the thing that she, it, it, you are brother and sister in Christ. You are both going to receive the inheritance from the Lord, and it is the same. You know, it's not you know, how it was in those days where the man receives inheritance and the woman doesn't. Right? It's, it's, it's an equal thing, and, and, what, and the equalness here is not that it's ever divided up. It's that we receive all of it. Each person receives a full share. We have access to the entire inheritance, so to speak, that we have in Christ. Then he adds, just to make sure that we understand that he's dealing with the very practical, everyday aspects of our interaction with our wife, he tells us here that we need to live this way, where we live with them in understanding, where we are giving them preference, where we are treating them with great gentleness because we're treating them as the weaker vessel, and also being reminded that, they are, that we are co-heirs together with the grace of life. Then uh, he says then that we are to do that so that our prayers, which are always to God, obviously, won't be hindered. That's a very strong statement. He's telling us there that the way that we treat our life has immediate and very strong a uh, very strong spiritual significance. Not only do we see from other passages that it can begin to hinder our relationship with the Lord, but here it hinders our communication with the Lord. It doesn't say what it is that we're praying for. So whether you are asking God for grace for your life, if you're not living this way, your prayers are hindered. There's, there's going to be a delay uh, of some kind. I, you know, we're not, I'm not going to put words and add to what the scripture says, but we want to make sure that we're understanding this in, in every way possible because it's just a statement that's made. Your prayers are hindered. The idea there is not that God suddenly becomes deaf, but God chooses, in this sense, to, in essence, begin to ignore whatever it is that you're asking for. Your prayer is being hindered because of your disobedience. That's the, that's the kind of thing um, that uh, he's talking about. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever used this phrase with young children, this has been uh, kind of common in my families, meaning in my family, my children's families, my, par- my parents, their family, that when it comes to whining children, which we just have a real aversion to, that there are times that we would tell the one who's whining that we can't hear the words they are saying because they are whining. And so they have to speak in a normal, regular voice because we don't respond to whining. Now, we're not saying that we've suddenly gone deaf. We're not saying that we can't understand the words that are coming out in the whiny, sing-songy way. What we're telling them is that we are refusing. We are choosing to not hear what they're saying. We're not going to respond to it because of the way that they're acting. And that must change really immediately. And then when that changes, we will then be able to have a discussion and deal with whatever the issue may happen to be. So the idea here is is that the individual is living in disobedience, and in this specific area, if the husband is disobeying what God has said, then God is choosing to not respond to his prayers. Now, I don't know if that's if he's not responding completely, if he's not responding in part, if he's just maybe waiting a while, but the key here is that God is 
so concerned about the way that the husband's a treat the way the husband treats his wife and his attitude toward his wife, that God is declaring that he is going to hold that against us personally and that our prayers are going to be hindered until we get this fixed. God has already given us the ability to follow and obey what this says. We do need God's grace on a daily basis to fulfill these commands that God has given us But at the same time, we don't want to fool ourselves into thinking that somehow that until God does certain things in my life, I'm unable to do these things. You and I are already able. We are created in the image of God. We've been regenerated by his spirit. The spirit of God now indwells us. God has revealed to us his will. He imparts to us daily his grace. And so we can we can do this. We are not going to do this perfectly, but we can do this. It may be that we may, we may not be trying. That, that's, that is the issue, perhaps, in this. But we want, once again, it's important for us to see how uh, uh, concerned God is in the intimate details of our life. So it matters a great deal how we speak to our wives when we come home from work or when they come home from work or when we both come home from work. It matters to God how that exchange goes. It matters to God how, if things go wrong, how we respond or react to them. And we know we get impatient. We know often that when it comes to the relationship we have with our spouses, that we are normally on much better behavior here than we are at home. We're used to each other. It's, more, it's easier to take each other for granted, so to speak. As Christians, we already know the divorce is out, so we're not really worried about that. And that's not always a good thing. I'm not saying divorce is a good thing, but the idea is is that we just, you know, well, they're not going to go anywhere. You know, good grief, we're not going to get divorced. Uh, And we we use that sometimes as a way to energize our disobedience and our lack of of doing the things that would please the Lord. So the idea then is is that we want to make sure that we we keep this really in the forefront of our mind and recognize that... uh, there may be many things that you're praying about and the Lord is just kind of up there waiting. Okay, well, uh, hello, what are you doing? You pray for the salvation of your friend at work, but you treat your wife like that. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't hear you. You're, you're praying for your son who maybe has a disease and... It's touch and go. I'm sorry, but I, I can't hear you because of how you treat your wife. See, it begins to touch on a lot of things that are very personal and close to us if we are praying. It could also be that sometimes because our prayers become hindered, we, we continue to, to move in the wrong direction. And that's a whole new bag of worms, so to speak, or can of worms, where, where we begin to pray less and, and everything else begins to fall apart in our life. So we need to recognize that then this aspect, that what he's talking about here, even though we're talking about the relationship of the husband and wife, this is not a narrow situation. This is not a, uh, the application of this and understanding of this is not something that's, that's just a small part of our life. It affects every facet of our life. This is a very big, broad thing that, that uh, uh, brings attention to Everything in my inner life is an individual. And so this is really, really very important. And we, we can never just have a casual approach 
to what is being said here in these words. The word that he uses here, and if you've ever heard any sermon at all on Ephesians 5, you've already heard this, and you've probably heard this many, many times, because in every single marriage seminar, this is pointed out. And that is the word that Paul uses for love. We all know that we're all very familiar with the Greek word for love. Most of us don't know Greek, but we know that Greek. And we know that the word is agape. And we know that the, uh, the verb form of that is agapao. And it is a word that deals with an unconditional love. Uh, it is a love of sacrifice. It is a love that really has very little to do with emotion. In fact, emotion really has nothing to do with it per se, there's emotions that are attached to it. There's emotions that are kind of attached like you would to a train. But it's not, foundationally, it's not built on, on that. It, it is a commitment. And also, what's important about this is that this commitment here, this kind of love that we are to have, um, there's no room ever for the individual who's commanded to love this way. In this instance, it's the husband. There's no room there for us to ever say or think that or to allow our love or our commitment for that individual to begin to wane because they're not loving us back or because they're not treating us with respect or because they're not this or they're not that. This is a very powerful word that's used here and it's, word, and it's used on purpose. Remember that in the book of Romans it tells us, because it, as it talks about um, the details of the gospel and that we know from the Bible that Uh, The Bible talks about God demonstrating his love for us. And in Romans, it says specifically that God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners or while we were yet sinning. And, And the word picture that is being given to us there is this. That when we were in, in the midst of our rebellion, not, not that God allowed the rebellion to kind of run its course and he wiped out a few thousand people and we became exhausted in our rebellion and we kind of saw all the dead bodies and we kind of calmed down and we were finally ready to listen and then he, he then sent Christ to us. That's not, that's not how that works. The idea is, is that when we were in the midst of our strong rebellion, to God, while we were screaming and blaspheming, while we were cussing him out, while we were doing all those things in the midst of all of that, it was in the midst of that, that was when he sent Christ. And so it's a very different thing. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with an individual where even if you weren't angry before, because of their attitude, because of, of the way they were handling themselves, they were escalating the conflict between you and them, and it began to affect you. You could feel your temperature beginning to rise. It got to a point to where maybe it no longer mattered who was right. You just wanted permission to smack them just to get them to be quiet. It's where you want something bad to happen. Not that you ever want anyone dead, but you want something bad to happen because you want them to somehow be taught a lesson in a very hard or harsh way. So the idea here is that true love, and we're going to see this in a few moments because it's very important for us to grasp this because a lot of times when it comes to loving in the way that God commands us to love, we just assume, A, because we can't do that, then we just excuse ourselves in certain areas and we never improve. We never get better. 
at loving the way that we're supposed to. And that is wrong. We are sinning against God and sinning against our spouse and even sinning against others when we do that. So again, love, or agapao here, means to love unconditionally. It means to love sacrificially. It means, again, that we are reflecting the love of God himself. Again, it does not describe an emotional love. It represents an act of the will of one who desires and seeks the other's highest good. You may have heard this before, but one of the reasons, only one, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that this word is used is also because of how marriages often are arranged in that time and in that culture. Because it was not uncommon for two people to be married who had never met before. They, they knew of each other, perhaps, because of the families. They knew that it had been arranged, but there was no meeting. They didn't meet the individual. The very first time they would meet, maybe the very first time they would even speak to each other, would be on their wedding day. Day one, now you begin. Here is your wife. You're, you're told this is your wife. That's a very un-American thing to do. Uh, here is your husband. So now, and what God is saying is, is you must love her. Period. You have no choice in the matter. To not love her this way is to disobey God himself. Which means then that it is possible to love this way and to love one you've never met before this way, regardless of what takes place. So in the context of Ephesians, this divine love, which is what we're talking about, is also the fruit of the Spirit. It is, it is the evidence. It is what is produced in us by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Again, that's why it's connected to our growth as Christians. Every aspect of our spiritual life as Christians is connected to our being able to do this. Uh, when m- married couples have difficulty, and when I say that, I mean severe difficulty, it's always spiritual. Always. Now, I'm not going to say that it's only spiritual, but the root, spiritual. When one, and maybe both, if they both, because sometimes both will do this, but if one is insisting on divorce, almost always, that is because their relationship with the Lord is faltering. Now, it is different when it comes to situations where if a woman's being abused, you know, there's complications that we're, that we're just talking about where just two people are having a difficult time and they've decided to call it quits or one decides to call it quits. You know, we don't have murder taking place. Uh, the idea there is, is that if they both claim to be believers, then there is a, a very large spiritual component to that. There is a refusal to grow in the love of Christ. And many times, because we are Americans, we don't like that. We think that, that somehow that means that God is being unfair and that God is being cruel and that somehow it's not right. That's why it's important for us as Christians always to make sure that we are continuously seeking to submit ourselves, submit our thinking to what the Word of God says. Because it goes contrary to our culture. It is very counterintuitive, so to speak in whatever culture you're raised in. Remember, I, I shared with you before the cultural conditions that Paul was in, the, you know, whether it's the Roman uh, culture or the Greek culture or even the Hebrew culture. Women were, women were dogs. Women were treated like cattle. 
Women were, were not considered fully human. So this command by itself is some of the most revolutionary things that could have been said by anybody. People would have, men hearing this for the first time would have laughed out loud at what Paul was even suggesting. What did he say? If we were, if our culture was like that, there might be a meeting after church tonight to try to find a way to dismiss me from being the pastor for saying that. That a husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's what, that's, that's what it entails. Because it's just so contrary to what they would say is just right and normal. And they're saying, how can he say that? Is this guy from another planet? Yet this is the command of God. And so he's, he's telling, commanding this, these people who are raised uh, in, this, in this kind of a culture to do this. So no matter what kind of culture we are raised in, even the idea that we are unable to do certain things because of our culture or we weren't raised that way, it just goes right out the window. We're called by God to live in obedience to him, period. It just doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter. Because we are to love God unconditionally. We are submitting ourselves to the God of the universe and what he said. What he said is correct, always. If there's a disagreement, I'm the one who's always wrong when it comes to that. So it's a very strong, again, a very strong statement that he's making here. So again, the individual... uh, this divine love that we are commanded to use or, or to have towards our wife, again, it is not only the fruit of the Spirit, it is itself uh, what we are empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit-filled husband is empowered by God to love this way. We are wearing the garment of the new man. Any attempt to exhibit agape love based on natural strength or self-effort is always destined to fail. Just as the love that Christ has for his bride, the church, was costly, in the same way this love by husbands demands the death to self. Again, remember that it is, that when the Bible mentions marriage, it talks about the, the, you know, the two clinging to each other and both become one new flesh. It's not they both come together and, and the husband now is more fulfilled. It's not that, they, that the husband's flesh is larger. They become one new entity is the idea that's being presented here. Agapao, then, is, a, is the word for love here, describes the selfless love which is given, again, even if it is not received or returned. And that's important. It, the, the receiving of love or this love being returned is of no consequence. So it can never be an excuse. So when someone says, well, I've just tried so hard to love her and I just can't get her to love me. And? What does that mean? Because we are, many are convinced that then means I have a right or I have grounds to go another way. Some, say, some may say, well, you have no idea how hard I've tried. But what does that matter? That's still not an option. That's why I believe the scripture makes it clear. If the unbeliever um, separates from, from them, then you're free. When you are abandoned, you're free. But if there's adultery that takes place, even when there's adultery that takes place, that even though that is a uh, reason for um, divorce, I believe that it's one of two situations. Either A, the individual refuses to stop the adultery. In other words, they're in an affair or where it happens to be. They refuse to stop, so that does officially end the marriage. Or the other one is, is that you are 
And I will be, well, I'll say it in a nice way. You're unable to forgive. Because I don't know if we can always say that you just won't forgive, though I, I do tend to think that's true. You just won't forgive. Because some people say, well, I just can't get past what he's done. Or I just can't get past what she's done. Well, that's actually untrue. You may feel that way, but God commands us to forgive. Uh, normally, at least in a lot of the cases that I know, the individual who's involved in adultery is not going to stop. And so... That marriage is over. But outside of those unique and very specific situations, this is to reign supreme. It is this this self-sacrificing, this costly, and it's costly because it may cost you and I a great deal of our happiness. That's what we might be losing in this venture. But remember, what's the most important is the glory of God. That's how we are to live. Now, for one who is not growing as a Christian, that just sounds so foreign. We have no real desire for that. But the one who is growing as a believer, there comes a point in time when you begin to get that. You begin to understand that. You, you, know, you, you're, you begin to enter into a, a position in your relationship with the Lord, that the Lord, He is meeting your needs, and you don't have to go in that direction. You know, you're able to live with that. So it's a, it can be a very, very touchy thing when it comes to this. When we deal with marriage, it's a very personal thing, and it's very hard. And the church for a long time, in a lot of areas, including this one, has made accommodations through the years that it shouldn't always make. We're making it again when it comes to homosexual marriage and, and homosexuality itself and all the issues surrounding that. The church already, in, as in general, um, is making accommodations. But this isn't the first time this has happened. We've been down this road before. We're used to this. And so uh, the pattern's already been set. So it's a tough thing. It's a hard thing um, for us to, a very hard teaching, I would say, for us to receive and to hear and to live by. Of course, remember that if you find yourself in a situation where perhaps you should not have gotten divorced and you were already remarried, remember that, that you can't fix that. You just can't divorce your new spouse and then go back to the other one. Uh, that's not the, uh, uh, the issue. It doesn't mean that you can never be forgiven, because you can be forgiven. It does mean that there may be certain things you can never do, uh, maybe certain blessings you won't receive. It doesn't mean that your life necessarily is going to be horrible, but we just have to face reality that it just puts you in a position where uh, some things may never be put right as a result. It just cannot be rectified in this life. Um, so again, the husband must love his wife with a love, and he must love her with, with a love that never exercises a tyranny of control. Kind of goes back to having a really good understanding of, of what it means for the wife to submit. There's, there should never be any tyranny. And again, we, we think in our day and age in our culture where that's just not even an issue. Well, it is in many cases, but back then that was always the case. The husband was always like the king of his home. That's why... You know, I don't even, I don't, I don't like that terminology. You'll never hear me say that I'm the king of my home or the king of my castle. Uh, that's just, that's never the case. Uh, because a king, uh, in any country, a king, a true king, is the absolute sovereign. So, technically, he can never abuse his subjects. Because his subjects are for his use in whatever way he deems fit. So if he beats them, that's, there's no issue there because he's the king. He's done nothing wrong. It's almost, it's almost a godlike status. It's kind of like, you know, God talks about the potter and the clay. 
And the clay, what does the clay ever say? You know, so if you decide to make a piece of pottery and you make it, and then you decide that you don't like it, and you destroy it or you crush it, that is your right. You've done nothing wrong with that. And that's kind of how that's viewed. So again, we need to make sure that we're very careful uh, when it comes to this, even more so as Christians, because of what the marriage relationship is supposed to, uh, is supposed to exhibit. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at just a few things there. We won't get through all this, uh, because I want to make sure that we apply this for, in a broad way, because it's, it is very, very important. Because too often what happens with 1 Corinthians 13, it is only viewed as being uh, a description of what uh, love and marriage should be like. And that's not what it is at all. It is a description of what love between believers is to be like. It is applicable, absolutely, in marriage. And we are going to apply it there. But we want to make sure that we have a good, full understanding of what it says. And I think it will help us to understand really what the church is to be. Uh, what the body of Christ is to be. Let me just kind of throw this out, um, just as some things for us to think about as we begin to work our way through uh, chapter 13, in particular verse 4. When it comes to chapter 13 and what we call the love chapter, uh, again, this is for the husband, this is for the wife, this is for the church member. A man who is not raised in a Christian family should then be one who learns from the church how to love his wife. He learns it from our treatment and our love for Christ. He learns it from our love and our treatment to each other as members. And he also learns it from our treatment as Christian husbands towards our own wives. Because all of that's on display in the church. So that's where he's going to learn that. The church is where this is reinforced. If you are being raised in a Christian family, the church is where all this is to be reinforced. Where does a child learn love for God? A child learns love for God by watching how dad loves mom and mom loves dad. That is their first exposure to how we are to love God. We need to keep that in mind. It's very, very important. It's, it's something that is caught, it's, it's developed. Uh, so it's, 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 even though we learn the truth of God and we learn theology from the scripture, the Bible also says that we are... Uh, a friend of mine used this phrase a lot, and I liked it. He says, you need to remember that as you live your life as a Christian, you are the gospel with skin on it. You represent Christ in that way. When it comes to, to the teaching of theological truth, we become the living uh, illustration of what that is to look like. That, that's what's going to enable individuals to really grasp the truth of Scripture is the way that we live. So it's, it's never just an intellectual thing. It, it's, it's all of that combined. So it's, so it's even more, because you know, we talk about sometimes that if we live as a Christian, and I need to pursue holiness because I want to make sure that I live my life in the right way so that, that my words, when I, give, when I give evidence or when I give testimony to the gospel of Christ, my life, at least in some way, lends credibility to the gospel. And that's true. But it's not just because I'm honest at work and I work hard. It's, once again, the way that I treat my wife, the way that I talk to my wife, the way I talk about my wife when I'm at work, the way that I treat other people. All these things that we've been talking about, all of that is what gives uh, strength and clarity to the non-believing world as to what the gospel is. So that's why I, I do think that one of the reasons why the church as a whole suffers, there's many reasons why we suffer the, um, 
lack of success in evangelism. I, I do believe that some of it is the time we live in. I do believe it's the culture we live in. Uh, there's a great deal of fight against. I believe that's true. I also believe that uh, there, there may be some difficulty in our inability to clearly uh, explain the gospel. But I also think that a part of, also, uh, of that also is, is that we're, we aren't living that out. And so there's no credibility to the, to the gospel. And so as a result, our, our, our witness is just destroyed. Uh, it's, it's ruined in many different ways. Um, so remember, so you, we, we can make it simple in this way. If I'm with a group of guys and we're just joking around, and let's say there's a few unbelievers in the group, and I then say things that are derogatory about my wife, I am damaging the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of the unbelievers in that group. So we don't think of it that way. That's very important. That doesn't mean that we can't have fun and say things that are funny. I do think we have to be careful when it comes even to, to sarcasm. So normally, I try to make sure that if, even if I'm sarcastic, whatever, whoever I'm being sarcastic towards or with is in the room. Uh, if I'm going to poke fun at my wife, I make sure she's in the room. I don't do it when she's not around because I just I don't want to be I don't want to be that kind of individual. And then of course, what complicates that is how others interpret what you're doing. That's why we have to be even more careful. We have to be aware of what other people think. So again, back to this idea that the church then is the place where the way we are to love our wives and the way we are to love God, it is reinforced in the church. It is reinforced not only at home, in the Christian home, in the way that the father and mother love each other to the children, but it's also then reinforced in church because as your, if your children get to know me, the way I love my wife is, reinforces that truth. And then, of course, as the way that we love each other. And so they see the same kind of love being exhibited in the world. So just, just uh, maybe just one of these, maybe two at the most, and, and then we'll finish this next week. When you begin in chapter 4 of, of 1 Corinthians 13, it begins by saying that love is patient. So the main idea there is that uh, love has a very long fuse. Now, it's important for us to connect that with something else later, and we, we can't do it tonight. It'll have to be next week because there's actually a statement that's made in 1 Corinthians 13 that I think is just absolutely phenomenal and just destroys most individuals' understanding of life and love. I, I, just, I think it's really important for us to grasp. I think it destroys uh, our view of the Christian life. As, when I say that, uh, destroys the improper view we may have, a misunderstanding we may have about, about the Christian life and how the Spirit of God works in us. So it's important that, again, we take this. Now, also remember, as we work our way through 1 Corinthians 13, that as he gives this description of love, remember that this is never viewed as you would a baseball game. That if you look at all the, if you were to isolate each of the different uh, attributes of love here, that if, you, if, that if you're getting half of them, you're doing really good. Because that's not how it works. All of these things need to be, for, for there to be true agape True, mature love, all of these things need to be present. I believe that as we grow as Christians, that as we mature, all of this will mature and more, and we will do all of these things better. But if we try to pick out on our own one or two things to work on and neglect the rest, I believe we're taking the wrong approach uh, to this. So first of all, true love, the true love that believers have with each other, 
the true love that a believing husband has to his wife is it's immediately patient. There's a willingness to suffer for a long time, regardless of the situation. What patience usually emphasizes is that your character, your attitude remains unchanged despite the pressure or despite the negativity of the circumstance. That's what it's getting at. So the idea of if I'm to love my wife as a Christian man, regardless of what she does, I am, I am patient, meaning my attitude towards her doesn't change, no matter what she does or whatever I think that she's doing. Uh, uh, it, that I'm, I'm not allowed, really, for that to happen because that would be disobeying God. I am commanded to love this way. We are commanded to be this way to each other, to be, to be patient. The Bible tells us, as believers, that we are to bear up with each other. That's another way of saying of putting up with each other. And that means that there's something behind that, which is uh, it can be kind of hard at times. Some of us, some of you, I wouldn't mind going camping with you. It'd be fun. Some of you, I'm not sure how many days we'd make it. Either you would be really irritated with me, or I'd be really irritated with you, or both. Because, you know, living together can do that. <laughs> and so the attitude that we bring is important. So this is a very important... So, when it comes to how we pray for each other and how we pray for ourselves, we can begin with this. Lord, help me to be patient. Help me to, to love this way, to be, to, to be thinking about this when it comes to loving others. So we're going to pick it up next week and work our way through it because I do think it would be very, very helpful for us in helping us to know how to pray, helping us to, to evaluate ourselves, um, helping us to be able to um, live in a way that really and truly honors God. And then we'll add strength and credibility uh, to the gospel itself. That is to be lived out at work, lived out at home, and lived out in each of our relationships, and in particular in the relationship between the husband and the wife. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and for your incredible patience with us. Because, Father, most of us, maybe it's all of us, but most of us, I know, Father, have fallen very short of all of these things that we've spoken about. And, you, and we, we deserve to be just wiped out for that. And you, you've been kind to us. You've still blessed us in many different ways. And we're so grateful. There are, th- thankfully, there are people in our lives that love us the way that they should love us. Because they love you. And because they are exercising the love that you poured into their lives. And so we're so grateful, Father. Because, Lord, we, many times, again, we deserve to be kind of thrown to the curb, so to speak. So, Father, we ask that you would help us where we need it the most, which is in the inner man, in loving others as we ought to, in being submissive to your word, regardless of what it says, and allowing your word to shape and to form every aspect of the way that we think about everything. So, Father, we may align ourselves under the right thinking of the word of God. So, Lord, we just say thank you. Thank you, Lord, so much for forgiving us of our unrighteousness. Forgive us, Father, for not loving others or loving our wives as we ought to. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.